The biggest issue that I see with technology is that it's completely unfettered. Anybody can use technology to create massive yeah. distribution of information that is not correct, is not real. Yeah. We as thought leaders, we as people who are educated still can at times cannot tell with our own eyes of what yeah. we're reading or what we're consuming yeah. is the real thing. Technology can be a great enabler in helping us combat that issue. The other way it can go is completely dystopian. It can completely erode the trust between the public and institutions. Welcome back to another episode of Wise on Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Basim Hijazi, producer of the show. How will major global forces such as demographic changes, resource stress, technology and economic power shifts change our future? At WISE, we have been trying to answer this question, but from the lens of education since our inception. And oftentimes, if you want to predict the future, the best place to start is looking at the past. So in this episode, we've decided to ponder about what is the current trajectory of the world and what are the main megatrends we're observing which are driving that change. To answer this question, WISE director and host of this episode, Elias Fulfoul, sits down with award-winning media executive and entrepreneur, Anna Rold. Anna is the founder of Diplomatic Courier, which is a flagship network and magazine for top diplomats in the U.S. and key capitals around the world. She founded the World in 2050 project in 2012, which has since convened over 20,000 stakeholders in various private and public sectors. Based on their findings so far, we can observe five key megatrends, those being one, exponential technologies, which is a prime example of what we're seeing with artificial intelligence right now. The second being climate change, disruption, and energy transition, a key issue that we need to address here and now. Another trend being individual and social well-being at an inflection point, as more societies around the world begin to push it closer to the forefront of our priorities. And we're also seeing a great trend of societal and governance institutions under pressure, as we're seeing mounting challenges that threaten global security. International cooperation is becoming more often than not an exception to the rule. And finally, education and work are in need of rebalancing as we are forced to pivot in response to a nexus of impacts like the pandemic, tech innovation, and prioritizing well-being. If you're interested in reading more details about these documented megatrends, do take a look through the link in the description where you can learn more about World in 2050, their work, and how to get involved. And with that, let's jump to Elias to kick off this conversation and learn more about the trends Anna has been observing. I am with uh, a dear friend of mine that I have been uh, looking forward to have uh, a conversation. Actually, I was looking forward to bring our friendly conversation to a bigger audience. So um, I have been an admirer of your work. Uh, We have been uh, collaborating uh, between Diplomatic Courier and and, uh, WISE for many years. And I'm a great fan of, of your work. And I'm so happy that we're having this conversation. Thank you, Elias. And I've been a fan of the podcast and you hosting. So I thought you would never ask me. So I'm very happy to be finally asked. <laughs> Thank you for, for having me here today. I needed to practice 
with a lot of other guests until I get to you, Anna, to have to have a level of, you know. Usually of, you start with friends, Elias, first <laughs> yeah, but, to get but comfortable. You, you're, you're, you're a special friend. You're a friend that I want to make sure that when we have a podcast, I have a bit of experience and a bit of knowledge to make sure that I get the right question. Uh, I understand. Because you, you navigate in a world that is not only education or, or healthcare or sustainability. You really are the bridge between these very important topics. Before getting into, you know, super deep dive into the work you do with Diplomatic Courier and the world in 2050, I do want to have an understanding of your beautiful journey, the background, the educational, uh, the education you've had. Just to understand how, you know, the journey. So I'm going to take us very, very back into my childhood. <laughs> Not to tell you the history of everything, but because um, where I was born and how I ended up here really is what drives me every day and also what connects me to people in a very authentic and genuine way. Um, so I had a love for cultures and and people and travel and diplomacy and, and all of those things because I lived in what would normally be thought of as the, back in the day, the North Korea of Europe. So I was born in Albania. I was born under very extreme communist regime. And I was cut off as a child from everything. But I kind of knew that there was a world out there. My dad used to listen to Voice of America every morning. So I used to hear him talk about things that were happening beyond this very closed universe. And it, um, and it drove me, gave me this desire to really want to know what's happening out there. So when my family moved to Greece and later, later on to America... Um, I knew that my ticket really to seeing the world was really learning languages. So I learned five of them, you know, as a kid, because that's the best time to do it. Right? I can't learn. We anything. absorb everything. That <laughs> right. <is. laughs> You're a sponge at that time. And so that desire. Re- and so learning languages mm-hmm. uh, also helped you to learn about other cultures. So I really, um, you know, developed a deep desire to travel. It wasn't easy being a kid of immigrants to do that. So I knew that my ticket to that was education. So I, so my family placed a big um, importance on education, like most immigrant families, because that's your ticket to class mobility. Yep. And so, and then the rest is history. You know, I went to college in America. Then I got my graduate degree. I studied diplomacy, negotiations. Uh, studying negotiations was really a great course in how to deal with people and how to help people come yeah. to arrangements yeah. to agree with each other, yeah. which really gave me the foundation to do the work that I do now. And so, do you knew you're gonna end up in journalism and it and uh, and diplomacy, or? So h- how much serendipity versus I am going all in to get to that kind of so sector? My freshman year in college, I thought I was going to be sort of the next great writer, good writer. Yeah. So I studied English and then I, I figured out at Northeastern University, there was like a very small cohort of people studying international affairs. I said, oh, this will be great because then I get to travel. <laughs> all my study abroad and all my uh, you know internships were in other countries. Also, I couldn't live in Boston in the winter because it was too much for having lived all my life in the Mediterranean, moving yeah. to a cold place 
face so I met from Montreal tell me about it <laughs> exactly so so that was a good way to just uh you know figure out how to to live abroad and yeah. study abroad and continue that but um it was an evolution mm. it was things that um I learned early as a child to be agile mm. and so carrying that agility in college really helped me because even though I studied certain things I managed to take them and move them into the career that I fell into not journalism I kind of fell into that mm. and and so we're we're celebrating how many years now of diplomatic career the this will be the 18th year because we launched at Anga 18 years ago wow Onga was another place 18 years yes, ago. Yes, completely different yeah. place, as you know. No yeah. SDGs, yeah. no private sector roaming around. Um, it was all about foreign ministers and, de you know, diplomats solving the problems yes. of the world completely alone. And then something happened with, we had more private sectors starting to engage yeah. than innovators. Right, so the UN innovated yeah. within itself. Forced or, or, or? Well, it was a process. Yeah. As transform we think of transformation as something radical, like change is happening and it's like a radical thing, but it's not. It's the slowest moving yeah. current you can think of. Um, and we'd love to study those slow moving currents and changes, but this was a process. It was a process over two long decades. Yeah. We're still not even there yet in yeah. terms of that transformation. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I today, young people who who, who really want to be influential. Yeah. If if someone in their twenties, their first job used to be either they go to UN or politics or mm. or finance consultancy, right. and we see a massive shift. And I and I see this. I, I, it's positive that people go to the startups, mm -hmm. but also we're losing a lot of talent mm -hmm. in the. By multilateral and bilateral, is 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 there some, you know? Well, some part, some UN agencies are definitely in a position to compete. Yeah, lots of them are not, and they're going to even. I mean, this is the laws of change and yeah. transformation. You're either going to adapt or die. Yeah. and some of yeah. these agencies are not going to be what they used to be in yeah. like 20 years from now. Yeah. Uh, but some of them are in innovating and disrupting from within, and they're... Okay, you see that. You yeah, I okay. see it with UNDP and their accelerator. Um, I see it with UNICEF at some point. So there are certain agencies that are doing great work from within. They're disrupting their own selves. They're cutting through their own red tape to get there, and they're adopting innovation in a way that is going to help them survive yeah. that kind of change. And others that are not, um, we keep calling. You know, there's all this UN security drama happening yeah. just right now. Yeah. Uh, we have some UN Security Council members who are just not even showing up. Um, so, what will happen to this UN Security Council? I mean, for the 20 years that I've been involved and coming here, I've noticed uh, calls from other emerging powers saying that the Security Council does not reflect the world of today. Yeah. The UN itself does not reflect the yeah. world yeah. post-World War II. Yeah. So these e these changes are either going to happen or we're going to invent new institutions that are going to reflect. That kind of slowly shadow exactly. and, and provide the And eventually replace. Yeah. And, eventually, and there's already things and yeah. movements happening yeah. replacing where we can. Yeah. And then eventually, that it's just going to feel like this change happened dramatically quickly, 
but it's been in the works for 30, 40 years. So if I keep this keyword uh, uh, of uh, transformation and, and change, uh, how do you see the evolution of journalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now that we have networks of social, you know, everything is digital. Right. And the social uh, media we're having, right. uh, you're still a you're you're a media that is digitally present, but you also have right. hard copies. How do you see the trans uh, the transition into from passive journalism to to these new type of journalism and 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 what are some of the recipe of success you've been you've been <laughs> dealing with to keep up you know both? So we started Diplomatic Courier in two thousand and six the same at the same exact time when Facebook was born, Twitter mm-hmm. was born, and some of these social media giants that now my kids are like, what was the world before? <laughs> what did you guys do before Twitter and all those um, outlets? They were we born at the same <laughs> To just be in the park. We had a life. <laughs> but before, so when this movement towards a digital information economy was just happening, because remember, this is not that old. It's quite still quite recent. Um, it was a huge disruptive uh, moment for the media. And I remember the time when I started Diplomatic Courier, I was starting a very formal type of a publication. Yeah. It was academic and research oriented. Yeah. It looked for thought leaders. Um, it wanted to cover these kinds of very wonky summits. And the idea behind it was that we were going from really, really big to as niche as possible. That business model was not a model that any of the funders and the, and the investors I went to mm-hmm. liked. <laughs> In fact, I got a lot of doors shut. Um, they thought it was crazy. And it, indeed, it was for the moment to yeah. do that. But the reason we succeeded was because we were small and agile yeah. and we could do massive quality control. We also were born during a disruptive time, so we could see what was happening around us and be agile and move along with the trends. And now we're at a moment where our model is being adopted by major media organizations because the way to survive the next disruption is to go more niche, is to cater um, with authenticity to your specific audience. It's not to take something uh, small and... um, like the model is not to just uh, take it over and bring it to as many millions of eyeballs as possible yeah. because technology enables you to do that. But yeah. then what? Yeah. There's yeah. no impact. There's no authenticity. There's no, um, you know, in our situation, uh, trust, trust of the brand, trust of what you're giving the audience, something that they don't have to research and make sure that it's not junk. If you have few stakeholders that you really want them to read Diplomatic Courier, mm-hmm. who that would be? So, without the sounding... Without, yeah, of course. And I, everyone is welcome to read Diplomatic Courier, but we're, we're Anna's happy when someone is... We are very, you know, so we are a publication whose audience is very high level. Yeah. We are read by ministers and heads of states yeah. and diplomats, thought leaders, but also policymakers, people who are making decisions. Yes, yeah. I would love to see this in every hand, every hand of um, a, a student in international affairs, politics, diplomacy, students of the day. I think this needs to be read by students. And we try really hard 
if you see Diplomatic Career, it's a beautiful publication. It's also we care about the style and the and the content just as much. We want it to be appealing to a younger audience. Yeah. Um, they need to be involved. They need to be informed. Yeah. And they need to be informed with long reads and in-depth pieces as opposed to just their feed yeah. on whichever social media outlet mm. they follow. Yeah. You touch upon technology a little bit, but about journalism. I do have a follow-up question regarding how do you uh, see the technology um, uh, and, and some of these digital platforms shaping the future of diplomacy, but also global communication? So right now, um, the model is, and this is how things have changed in just the last 10 years, um, What's being fed to the public through these huge technology means? I mean, AI being one of them, and we, we're having a major existential discussion about AI right now for that very reason. Yeah. It's as a toolbox, it has uh, brought exponential capacities to those who are distributors of information. Yeah. It used to be that the fourth estate um, was a was an institution of authority. It is no longer an institution of authority, just like many of our other societal institutions is under attack. Um, it It's not trusted by the general public. And so who fills that vacuum when it's not being trusted? The biggest issue that I see with technology is that it's completely unfettered. Right now, you can, anybody can use technology to create massive yeah. distribution yeah. of information that is not correct, is not real. Yeah. We, as thought leaders, we as people who are educated still can, at times, cannot tell with our own eyes of what yeah. we're reading or what we're consuming yeah. is the real thing. Technology can be a great enabler in helping us combat that issue, yeah. but it can also, the other yeah. way it can go is completely dystopian it completely can completely erode the trust between the public and institutions which is already at a very low point yeah. um and it could create an even more the the outcome of authoritarian regimes you know it could create massive disruptions and yeah. we don't need to yeah. no, exactly. bring the mood down <laughs> yeah, exactly. i mean we we heard uh we were on the same uh event yesterday and and we heard so many paradoxal kind of point of view on people optimistic or pessimistic about right. the future and now obviously ai is the main right. topic the main technology tool that people right. are talking about and as much as people are excited about how this is gonna mm -hmm. impact uh, our life and our our roles as much as people do not understand right. how we're gonna be able to just use the benefits and the positive that is coming out of these tools and and it's very hard right even even experts right. from 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 the field they, they they don't know how you know they, we don't know how to make it just positive they but we, we can't tell what the unintended consequences can be what we do know is that it can go south very easy yeah because we know the nature of humans. Yeah. So we know that some of us do yeah. not have the best intentions. Yeah. And we've seen the story unfold before. So if we trust, you know, if the, if we, people ask me as a futurist, what do I do? Do I predict the future? And I said, no, I'm a good history yeah. person. I love reading history. Yeah. If you want to know what happens in the future, 
figure out happened before. We are bound to always repeat ourselves. And so when it comes to technology, the big AI conversation we're having right now is not at all about the technology itself. Yeah. It's about our anxieties, our society. Are we going to do it this way? or I, are we I love this. It's, yeah. it's, that's what we're worried about. At the end of the day, that's the biggest issue that we're facing. And we control our anxiety and our behavior. Right. It's, or, or to, a, to some extent, we can right. control that. We, we can right. have a level of, you know, we can create a framework for us to operate within. Yeah. I, there was this um, old parable or a story that, that um, they used to say here in the United States, um, there is an angry wolf and a good wolf and, you know, which one are you going to feed, right? You know, which one is going to win when they're fighting? Is it the, And it depends on who are you feeding. So we come to these technologies, to AI specifically, are we, is it our better yeah. self? that's going to feed the technology or is the technology right now, these large language models are being trained by all the garbage that we have fed the <laughs> internet the last 20 years. Yeah. And so it's a reflection of us. Of us and yeah. so we're, we have reasons to be worried. Yeah. So into the future now. Okay. <laughs> all right. So let me get my magic ball real quick. Uh, you have a you have like a magic stick. Oh, or, it's always like we just, we have this big fish ball. We put in words yeah. in there. We shake it, and we're like, okay, that's what we're gonna do today. <laughs> I okay, I, I like that. Okay, uh, I, I, what, I kid because I don't want people to think. Why didn't you see? No, no, I know, I know, I know. It's no, no one knows the future, and uh, and however we can contribute to to try to build the future we want to imagine. Yeah. Um, you created 18 years ago Diplomatic Career, right. and more recently, um, like a real start, uh, start uh, I'm gonna say it in French, startup, startup, uh, <laughs> like a real leader of a startup, you pivoted <laughs> or not, not pivoted actually, you kind of created a spin off. A spin off, yeah, that's uh, exactly what that is. <laughs> the world in 2050, yes. We're, we're not the world in 2030 or we're, we're no you're, we're, you're, there was the year I was going to supposedly retire <laughs> it was the 70s I was looking for a good soft landing for my retirement <laughs> I okay I see how the vision uh, the vision worked its way uh, so what originally motivated you to launch the world in 2050 project what gap were you seeking to address when it comes to humanity future? <laughs> It's a it's a easy question. It's a softball. Well, um, so my producer made, made, told me you need to ask this question. <laughs> I'm happy to wax lyrical about world in 2050 for a very long time, especially here at the, at the on the outskirts of the UN, where everyone's talking about 2030. And the reason we look at so, let me tell you a little bit about the story behind it. So the the initiative started. We we were covering all the multilateral summits. So at the G20 in Mexico in 2012, we got very engaged with the B20, which is the business counterpart of the G20. G20s is made up of a lot of these different uh, groups that inform um, their proceedings. The B20s, the entire business community, they got together. We were covering their event. We were meeting with them. And they um, started talking about global talent skills and, uh, this, the, and talent mobility for the 21st century. They, as a business community, at a time when we were still reeling from the uh, uh, 2008 financial crisis and all those things, they were there to talk about crisis issues. Yeah. 
as it relates to the world economy, they start talking about talent and education and how the skills gap and how the fact that the world, there are certain parts of the world where the demographics will allow for much more uh, employment opportunities, where the re- there's a parts of the world will be a huge deficit, but our policy doesn't allow for that kind of mobility movement. They couldn't have predicted work from home back then and all that. (laughs) But those were the things that they were talking about, that it was a huge business risk. That was trend one. We looked at the skills economy even back then in 2012, before it became, before you started hearing about blockchain and learning Mm. models and all of these new things, they were talking about them from an analog perspective. How does policy move in a way to help advance human flourishing? Human flourishing comes from education. We talked about class mobility. It's the the quintessential way to make sure that society advances, right? Education. Education is being hugely disrupted. What's available um, in the global south is, you know, we know there's a like a big number, a huge emerging number of young talented people. Um, there is the an are... aging population yeah. in the global north. Yeah, jobs over here, but not over here. Yeah. Talent over here, but not over yeah. here. So how do we reconcile that? That was trend one. And what we said at World in 2050 is how do we help the future arrive well? Um, how do we make sure that the that we study history, that we make the right decisions now, we bring in the right stakeholders now to work about on these issues so that we don't have, we're not, you know, what we say is we're either going to have a world that is completely dystopian yeah. because technology... we want to avoid that scenario. So how do we avoid uh, that? And And we're... We're not futurists in the sense that we can predict what's coming, but we do use a methodology and a model um, when we do our convenings with our experts. Um, we use innovation labs. We use the Three Horizon model where we ask them to look at the issues from the lens of today and then short-term hit, um, future and then the longer-term future. Again, with the idea is the idea is that we will build scenarios together yeah and see the range of things that could happen yeah. and try to figure out how to disrupt or mitigate what could happen. It could, it could be all the way to Mad Max. It could be Star Trek. How do we figure out, you know, what's in between and can we work towards the path of Star Trek? All right. For the for our audience, can we uh, deep dive a little bit into these megatrends? They are five. So tell us what are right. the five megatrends and if possible, can we make a kind of right. connection between the five and right. see how are they related? Because I think if we if right. we fail one, it's like a, almost a domino effect exactly. on, on each each exactly. one. Yeah. There is no solving one without the others. Exactly. And yeah. so we pick those five. It's because they when we were so it's exponential technologies, well being and human health and human flourishing. It's education and work and labor. Um, it's um, governance and institutions. Basically, there's a million problems. <laughs> We're not going to boil, boil the ocean. Diplomatic Korea cannot do that. World in 2050 cannot do that. The UN cannot do that. Yeah. They have 17 goals and, it's, and hundreds of... Um, of other sub goals and it's still not we're still are nowhere near getting where we want to get so what we try to do with the five mega trends they're all very interconnected again they, you can't solve one without the other 
um, and they're all layered. And we chose them because this is where we saw we could make the biggest impact if we figure out a way to create what we call interdisciplinary connections. At the end of the day, we are not a research think or think tank the way research institute or think tank the way maybe a Brookings is. We're more um, enablers or interlocutors. So we play the role of ambassadors. What we try to do is we leverage our brand and our ability to convene to bring the right stakeholders together to solve across these issues. Now, most of the conferences that you know are, you know, you'll go to one for education or one for healthcare. And you'll be able to meet everybody who's doing stuff in education yeah. or everybody's doing stuff yeah. in healthcare. Equal chamber almost, yeah. How often do you go to a conference where you're, we're bringing you face-to-face with leaders that are doing, are having sort of the same anxieties and issues and challenges, but they're in completely different categories. They're in completely different genres. And what we've seen in the past 10, because this is a 10-year-old initiative now, is that we these uncommon collaborations that are happening when cross-sector, when their cross-sectors are, are getting together and learning from each other, is that they're able to advance yeah. solutions faster because education and healthcare, for example, there are two, um, there are two genres that are facing very similar problems. Yeah. And healthcare has advanced in some areas where education could really learn from. So, I, I, I just for the for the example of healthcare and and, and education, I, 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 you know, I we run an accelerator. We work yeah. with founders of edtech companies. I have been telling, yeah, you know, our ecosystem. Imagine healthcare without technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we would have been in big trouble. I mean, yeah. And and in the case of education, it has been very difficult right. to uh, integrate right. meaningfully education to help teachers and yeah. teach, to help learners learn, to help. And uh, and COVID have accelerated a little bit the mind shift, but it's still right. very hard to. It's very it's still hard. very hard. There are legacy institutions. They're yeah. late at the end of the day. And the yeah. institutions yeah. are very hard to change, by yeah. the way. People change all the time. It's in our nature. This is how we live. This is yeah. how we survived for yeah. a thousand years of civilization. Yeah. But um, institutions will try their hardest yeah. not to let you change. So 10 years journey right. in, in, in this. Uh, things have been exponentially changing. Right. And and we see it with the latest tool. Right. Uh what is some of the contribution you you believe the world in 2050 have brought to the table mm-hmm. and you know and and what are some of the things that you would want to do faster mm-hmm. to be able to contribute to the to you know it, the yeah. decision maker imagine the future that we hope we can get to so the work we do is just always not flashy it's yeah. mostly quiet and modest yeah, yeah. Um, as I said, our best work is done behind the scenes is bringing people together. So bringing people together and those, that's not an easy thing to quantify. Impact is not easy to quantify, as you know, yeah. right? You deal with startups and innovators who are trying to prove impact. Um, I think the best thing we have done as an organization is advance some of these issues 
in a way that now they're a big part of conversations at the big boys' tables or the big girls' tables. Um, they are now part of these conversations where people are moving the needle in policy. Yeah. Um, and that's not something that we take lightly. So we're, um, we think this is a great burden to yeah. have. Um, and that only gives us more impetus to do more of it. Um, but it is the kind of work that is really hard to prove to yeah. the outside that it's bringing impact. One thing I did want to say is that as we are a group, a team of very agile professionals, world in 2050 and the mega trends are not something that we conceived 10 years ago and we're like, this is it. We're going to yeah. move forward with these five mega trends for the next 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do that. We actually bring together our experts every year to inform us on how we need to revise. And we dropped a mega trend last year and we replaced it with something else. Okay. And the reason for that is because we do see this great exponential change happening. Sometimes change happens in 20 years and sometimes happens in six months, yeah. which is what's happened in yeah. the last year. Yeah. Sometimes COVID happens and it completely disrupts everything you're doing. So we need to, we, we've been doing that as well. It, recently, a big, a lot of people from the tech world have met with, uh, you know, the Congress. Yeah. And the idea is to really educate the Congress mm -hmm. about the fast changing pace and, and the exponential changes right. happening in, in technology. And how do you see these two words that, you know, I don't know, what's the average age of congressmen right now? It's and then without, without, but we, we, can, we, can, we can, we can, we can learn at any age, but, but right. there's, there's, there's a lot of things that is hard to change if, right. if you're, if, if you're 70 or 80. Uh, right. And so when it comes to reform and, 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 you know, policy at that super high level, if when we have decision makers that are completely disconnected mm -hmm. from how things are changing, mm -hmm. you, you know, isn't it room it's for us concern. not to be super hopeful? I mean, um, I mean, you know me, I'm a hopeless, yeah. uh, you know, optimist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would say, yes, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly of what's been happening the past couple of weeks. Um, the good news is there's a real genuine interest from this group of uh, very powerful policymakers to understand, really, from a granular perspective, yeah. what the challenges and opportunities are with AI. That's the good thing. The fact that they're having so many conversations and they're bringing all the relevant actors is great. The bad news is it's happening behind closed doors. So we don't really know the yeah. level of their understanding. Yeah. And you're right. We yeah. should be a little concerned. Last yeah. time they had a public hearing, everyone quotes that moment when Facebook was giving was talking to Congress and yeah. someone was like, how do I change my password? Yeah. How do you make money? <laughs> you know, so, so, and then the rest of them were like, whoa, wait a minute. We're at that level. Yeah. We know you guys did. It's like top yeah. your grandma, yeah. your grandpa asking you, yeah. you know, how to get on the Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the Wi-Fi password is one, two, three, four, five, yeah. you know. Um, but all of that said, um, I think the, the part that really is disconcerting is that if these um, meetings do continue, that they bring in more stakeholders. What you saw, there was a very powerful meeting of the big tech titans and um, the 
big policymakers in the United States, and I think it's going to happen around the world, right? There are going to be very powerful meetings where people yeah. with decision and power and all that uh, are going to be able to figure out the next steps. The problem with that is that that looks very much like mm. the world from 50 years ago. Yeah. Even though we've made changes in how the um, electorate looks and there's more women and there was more people um, there's more minorities representing that just that Congress is not representing yeah, of the, the reality of today it's yeah. also not representing the whole world yeah. that's the other thing too is that these uh, tech titans are based in the United States yeah. they see the world from Silicon Valley, from Silicon Valley yeah. it's a very different world yeah. even from an innovator's point of view you and I know there's innovation hubs, hotspots everywhere and they are looking at innovation very differently. Mm. So if that's who's making decisions, that's those are life-changing. Again, going back to our anxieties, everything we love, hate, want, desire is kind of mm. developed by these algorithms over here. And we have no idea what's in the secret sauce. We know some of them are very concerned for good reason. And that gives us even more existential anxiety. Yeah about yeah. where we are, you know, coupled that with climate change and all of that, we, I think, and you and I talk about this all the time, not to digress, but um, bringing more young people to the table, those are the real stakeholders. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about their future right now, and we're about to seal it for the next 100 years, uh, bringing more women, bringing more people from around the world. Having a true AI summit, in yeah. my opinion, at that level is bringing yeah. people from around the world. Yeah. Where, where you have the right mix of innovators, policymakers, right. young people, all the right. yeah. Bringing inventors. That's, that's, yeah. that's a good idea. <laughs> I should do it. <laughs> I'll propose it to the, to the wise leadership. <laughs> we should do that. We should all do it. I will be there. I'll propose it. <laughs> See, I invited myself. <laughs> and, and you will be invited. Um, um, two last questions. I just want to come back to advices to young people. And so first of all, so how, how do you see... At a, personal but also mm -hmm. diplomatic career and the world in 2050 how do you see mm -hmm. uh, some some of the things you you would want to achieve in in the right. near future and the last last question will be what are some of the advice you would give since you, you you're mm -hmm. so passionate about involving young people mm -hmm. what are some of the, the the advice you would give to your 20 years old anna so First question, last question first, I would say um, I am genuinely passionate about bringing young people to the table. I think some of it is being done here at the UNGA. Some of it has been done the past several years, but not with the effect that we're looking for. We have UN youth ambassadors, but we're not very sure if they're here to just say a few things, to say their perspective, or they're really here to be involved in changing policy. Um, so giving, giving young people more agency, I think is very important. I think you guys have done that in an effective way at WISE. More of it needs to be done. So great that you're doing, yeah. <laughs> you need to do more of it. Um, when we do our innovation labs at uh, Diplomatic Courier, our age group is between 20 to 60 something. So basically, we don't think age is a barrier. We believe in lifelong learning. We also believe that people of all ages who are interested in being productive solution makers, yeah. they can all contribute. And that's why the outcomes from our innovation labs are so interesting uh, because you do have 
that person who retired and the young person who's just starting life colliding in yeah. a very interesting way. Yeah. Um, so the advice I would give my 20-year-old self is to really not feel like I don't belong in the room. Yeah. I feel that my generation was very timid. Yeah. This generation does now feel like that. And yeah. I actually admire that. Yeah. I think, you know, when I see my kids, you know, when I see to me their kids, these yeah. 20 year olds that yeah. come to our meetings yeah. and events, I'm just I'm just so impressed. Yeah. And so I would tell myself be more like that. Yeah. You know? Bravo. Yeah. That was a pleasure uh, having this conversation, Anna. Uh, Thank you. you are doing uh, a meaningful work. Please keep doing these inspirational work in diplomacy and journalism. And I look forward to uh, see how you influence the, the world of policy makings. And everyone should read more of Diplomatic Career. Thank you. I appreciate the platform. Thank you, Elias, so much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure.